Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical malpractice, mental health conditions, suicide and alcohol abuse that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13 and for those struggling with disordered eating. When someone isn't feeling as fresh as they want to, they may decide to eat clean. They'll swap sodas with smoothies, replace steak fries with salads. Perhaps a specific food might hold the cure, like spice soup for a sore throat or warm milk for trouble sleeping. In most cases, cleanses, diets, and folk medicines serve to kickstart a healthier state of being. For Dr. Linda Hazard, however, alternative approaches to wellness were merely a mask for her malicious intent. While Linda's quest for an effective cure-all may have started out honest, her motivations shifted with time. She began to prey on the wealthy, writing prescriptions that would suck them dry. In her care, patients only grew sicker, and before long, few who entered her wellness center came out alive. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to provide Alistair with some medical insight into our case of Linda Burfield Hazard, a doctor who was early into the specialty of alternative medicine, treating her patients with a deadly prescription of starvation and enemas. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on Linda Burfield Hazard, whose fasting cure killed at least a dozen people in Washington state in the early 1900s. Spurred on by greed, Linda offered alternative medicine to the wealthy, then let them die once she had control of their assets. In this episode, we'll cover Linda's own history of illness and how she weaseled her way into a medical practice with no qualifications. Next time, we'll learn how she hooked two of her most notorious victims, securing her reputation as the financial starvationist. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The bustling region of Carver County, Minnesota had hardly been around for a decade when Linda Burfield Hazard was born there in 1867. Linda's parents, Susan and Montgomery Burfield, kept a vegetarian diet and did their best to look out for the well-being of their children. On occasion, this had negative consequences. Montgomery held a particularly strong belief in a physician who diagnosed the children with intestinal parasites, which they may or may not have had. According to Greg Olson, author of Starvation Heights, the doctor prescribed blue mass pills for the affliction. These contained high levels of the chemical mercury. Though such prescriptions would later fall out of favor with the medical community at large, Linda's father had full faith in the doctor. For several years, Linda took the blue mass pills as directed, even though she suffered agonizing fits of vomiting and diarrhea after swallowing them. These symptoms are common for people who ingest high levels of mercury, which is a toxic heavy metal. These blue mass pills contained elemental mercury and mercury compounds, which when ingested can have severe health ramifications. Generally speaking, this type of mercury exposure targets the gastrointestinal tract and kidneys and can quickly result in things like abdominal pain, vomiting, and bloody diarrhea. These stomach issues can sometimes become persistent and long-term mercury toxicity can lead to necrosis or cellular death in the intestinal mucosa, which lines the GI tract. There's also a risk of renal tubular necrosis, which is when the kidneys become damaged due to poor blood flow and compromised oxygenation, on top of long-term damage to other organs and the immune system as a whole, there's evidence that prolonged exposure can also lead to central nervous system disturbances, which may have lasting effects on mood and behavior. This is particularly relevant to children who are exposed to large doses of mercury. There's also an association of mercury exposure with cancer. One reason for this is that mercury exposure suppresses the production of the immune system's natural killer cells, which help fight a variety of cancers and infections. There's little doubt that Linda's overall mental and physical health were impacted by her repeated ingestion of mercury. Constantly plagued by her damaged stomach and unable to consume normal portions of food, Linda was frequently angry. And worse, when one of her doctors tried to treat her persistent stomach issues by prescribing the drug Calomel, she began losing teeth. It seems that these early negative experiences with medicine pushed her down the path of alternative cures. And in 1886, 18-year-old Linda moved away from her father's influence and into a home with her new husband, 32-year-old Erwin Perry. Within five years, Linda was a mother to two children of her own, a role that didn't fulfill her. Perhaps she came to believe that motherhood simply wasn't her calling. 
but in 1891, this wasn't something Irwin or any husband wanted to hear. As her marriage slowly deteriorated, Linda's focus transitioned to her own medical career. She began studying a relatively new form of medical care called osteopathy and prepared to arm herself with knowledge that might assist with her chronic digestive issues. Unfortunately, Linda's biases against conventional medicine left her dissatisfied with some of the coursework. Around 1898, Linda took it upon herself to find a healing practice worth learning about. Diving into independent studies, she was intrigued by the true science of living, the new gospel of health, written by former army surgeon Dr. Edward Hooker Dewey in 1895. Its recent publication made it a contemporary piece of scientific literature, while its contents took a natural approach to healing. Both things Linda appreciated. In the book, Dr. Dewey proposed that rigorous fasting could heal the body. Convinced of Dr. Dewey's genius, 30-year-old Linda chose to follow in his footsteps. She contacted Dr. Dewey, expressing her appreciation for his writings, which had become her gospel. She begged him to take her on as a student. The elderly doctor eventually agreed. Dewey trained Linda in his methodology, passing on his techniques. Linda likely felt she was taking the baton from him and racing toward the future of medicine. In 1898, 12 years after marrying Irwin Perry, her husband reportedly disappeared. Linda claimed Irwin had abandoned her and the children with no support. Neighbors thought that the situation was the opposite, suspecting that Linda had actually left Irwin. The truth remains inconclusive. But one thing is clear. Linda felt she was dedicating her life to something far more meaningful than being a wife and mother. She wanted to become a missionary of medicine, even if that meant supplanting social norms. By 1902, her divorce was finalized and she had moved to Minneapolis to set up an office downtown, promoting her services as an osteopath specializing in fasting. There was just one issue. Linda wasn't actually a doctor. Medical licensing laws at the time were shockingly laid back, and there were several loopholes that allowed Linda to act as though she was an actual physician. Regardless of the facts, in her mind, she was a medical professional trained by the best. By the grace of underdeveloped legislation and personal arrogance, Dr. Linda Burfield began treating patients, professing her skill with near-religious devotion. In mid-October 1902, 34-year-old Linda welcomed a rather frustrated woman into her office. 41-year-old Gertrude Young was at her wit's end. She'd had a stroke two years ago, and despite consulting various doctors, she'd yet to regain feeling and function in one arm and foot. Desperate, Gertrude surrendered to Dr. Linda Burfield's alternative methods. It was unlike any regimen Gertrude had heard about, but Linda assured her that fasting would help her walk again. Linda's promises were really strange and misguided, and there are a couple of issues here. 
First, given that it had been two years since her stroke, it's clear that Gertrude's feelings and function in her arm and foot weren't coming back. This problem comes from tissue damage in the brain and unfortunately doesn't go away or repair itself. In some cases after a stroke, tissue inflammation in the brain can cause a temporary paralysis, but this normally improves within a few days as the inflammation resolves and the tissues return to their normal functioning. So in this respect, Alistair, there was nothing Linda could have done to help with Gertrude's recovery at that point. Secondly, if someone was recuperating after suffering a stroke, fasting wouldn't be good for them. This is because they'd need the calories and optimal nutrition in order to restore their health. Although temporary fasting may not necessarily harm someone, it wouldn't have been the answer Gertrude was looking for. Still, Gertrude was hopeful about Linda's prescription. That October, she began a 40-day fasting cure. Throughout her course of treatment, a nurse checked in on her as needed. (coughs) 33 days in, the problems started. (coughs) On November 12, 1902, Gertrude woke to severe vomiting. She spasmed, retching over and over again before collapsing back against her pillows, exhausted and freezing. Despite the frigid winter chill, the apartment windows were open at Linda's direction. Concerned, the nurse who tended to Gertrude that evening called on a local physician, not Linda, and asked him to get to the apartment quickly. Gertrude needed help. At just over 105 pounds, Gertrude's body had grown weak and her internal systems were likely unable to function properly. When he saw her condition, the doctor advised her to end the fast right away, insisting that if she continued, she'd surely die. Gertrude refused, determined to keep up with the fast as Linda had directed. She dreamed of using her arm and leg again. Six days passed and Gertrude stayed firm. Unfortunately, she never met her goal. Gertrude Young died on November 18th, day 39. Linda said that the cause of Gertrude's death was paralysis, the problem that had bothered her before she started the fasting cure. Authorities disagreed. The licensed physician who'd seen Gertrude the week before her death conducted an autopsy and concluded that Gertrude died of starvation. The woman weighed just 105 pounds and had been severely dehydrated. That much made sense given her fast, but one finding perplexed him. Gertrude's body contained hardly any blood. The lack of blood in Gertrude's body was odd, but not entirely incomprehensible. Extended fasting can lead to dehydration and iron deficiency, which might result in a slight decrease in blood volume. Humans get iron from eating plants and other animals, and it's a mineral that's vital in the creation of red blood cells, which carry oxygen from the lungs to the body's organs and tissues. Red blood cells make up about half of the blood's volume, so a small amount of blood loss here isn't out of the question. Intense dehydration may add insult to injury, given the havoc it can wreak on the kidneys. With extreme fluid deprivation, the kidneys become dysfunctional and may be unable to produce erythropoietin, a hormone that signals our bone marrow to make red blood cells. 
Whatever the case, the dramatic blood loss is odd, and it's likely we're missing some information surrounding the death. The coroner had reason to be suspicious. Though the coroner couldn't make sense of Gertrude's blood loss, he did blame Gertrude's death on Linda. Just two days later, the city newspaper ran a front-page headline indicating that the doctor was in favor of a murder trial. Coming up, a legal loophole keeps the phony doctor in business. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Accused of murdering her patient Gertrude Young in 1902, Linda Burfield shirked all responsibility. She argued that Gertrude had started to heal but then stopped following the treatments exactly as prescribed. It wasn't Linda's methods that caused her death, but Gertrude's own failure. This was notably different from Linda's original explanation that Gertrude died of stroke-induced paralysis. Though her defense was weak and unprovable, so were the claims against her. Linda's lack of medical credentials actually seemed to help her. There weren't any laws against the so-called quack treatments she practiced, as long as she was a regular citizen. This meant that she couldn't be held legally responsible for Gertrude's death, especially given that Gertrude had voluntarily undergone the treatment. The case was closed before it ever opened. Had they pursued an investigation, authorities may have picked up on a notable motive. Several pieces of jewelry were missing from Gertrude's belongings, including rings that Gertrude had apparently worn until her death. Linda never admitted to taking them, but she was one of only a few individuals with regular access to Gertrude's possessions in that final month. Unquestioned, Linda carried on with her sham practice. 
worse, she was about to ensnare an accomplice. Even though Linda's medical practice survived 1902, her reputation had taken a well-deserved hit. Perhaps her sense of being ostracized by the community left her yearning for connection. Because in 1903, Linda struck up with a handsome West Point grad, 33-year-old Samuel Hazard, who was also known to use the last name of Hargrave. Sam's landlord and neighbor was one of her patients, so Linda ran into Sam frequently. And as her feelings developed, she found them reciprocated. There was only one problem with handsome Sam. He was already married. Though Linda knew this, it didn't deter her. She let Sam pay secret visits to her in her downtown office building at all hours. To cover, Sam assured his wife, Viva, that he and Linda were merely going to become business partners. Though Viva initially approved of the business relationship, she didn't maintain that opinion for long. She met Linda on October 16, 1903, and was introduced to Linda as Sam's wife. The next day, Viva received an aggressive letter claiming that Linda was Sam's lover and his marriage to Viva was a sham. Hurt, Viva begged Sam to stop seeing Linda. Sam conceded and wrote a letter to Linda, stating his first duty was to Viva and his marriage. But Linda wasn't so ready to back down. She had great plans for her career and medical practice, and she felt Sam would make a good partner in such pursuits. It's unclear how Linda convinced him, but she and Sam were legally married on November 11, 1903, in the office of Linda's Minneapolis practice. That day, Linda Burfield became Linda Burfield Hazard. Their wedding night was one the two would never forget. Sam went home to Viva, and Linda spent the night alone. Naturally, Viva was incensed upon discovering that her husband had married another woman. With the help of her politician father, she convinced the county attorney's office to file bigamy charges just after Thanksgiving that year. While Sam refuted this, insisting that his union with Viva was never official, a dramatic court case ensued. All of Minneapolis followed the case. And once again, Linda was in the media spotlight. Months later, on February 9th, 1904, Sam Hazard was found guilty of bigamy. The general sentiment was that Linda had been the one in the wrong by convincing Sam to marry her. Still, it was Sam who served time at the state penitentiary. During Sam's nearly two years behind bars, his affections seemed to alternate between Linda and Viva, almost as if he couldn't make up his mind. It wasn't exactly uncharacteristic for Sam. Though he had all the swagger of a military man, beneath his polished surface lay something more sinister. A history of alcoholism and deception. For years, he tricked people with false checks and forgeries, skipping out on bills when it suited him. Prison did little to correct Sam's dishonesty. 
On October 30, 1905, Viva eagerly anticipated Sam's return. Instead, he flocked to Linda and fled west. In 1906, Linda and Sam Hazard moved into Seattle, Washington. They hoped that this would allow them to escape their bad reputations back in Minneapolis. It was a safe bet that no one in their new neighborhood had a clue about Sam's bigamy trial or the death of Gertrude Young. With a clean slate, Linda jumped back into work, applying for a medical license through the Washington State Board of Medical Examiners. Since she'd previously worked as a fasting specialist in Minneapolis, her credentials appeared legitimate. The board eventually approved her, and she continued practicing from her downtown Seattle office. She hoped that the notoriously liberal city would be more amenable to her non-traditional treatments. Sure enough, they were. Upon seeing Linda's name painted in black letters on her office door, folks stopped in to learn what Dr. Hazard was all about. Before long, they were subject to a spiel on how Linda's method could cure anyone of any malady. She claimed to have healed everything from cancer to heart trouble to insanity to epilepsy. She also delighted in visits from journalists and local inquiring groups gushing about her methods to all who would listen. Her boastfulness paid off. At the end of 1907, Linda secured a client in 37-year-old Daisy Maud Hagland. Linda prescribed her usual fasting cure for Daisy. Consume only small amounts of nutritious liquids like tomato broth and orange juice. No meat. It was the root of all patients' problems. Daily walks, no matter how tired Daisy felt and come into the office for specialized treatments from Linda. At these appointments, Linda laid her patients out in front of her and slammed her fists against their body. Bam! 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 Hammering their thighs, backs, even their foreheads. When they complained that it hurt, Linda would tell them that that meant it was working. The massage treatments were designed to promote circulation. In reality, Linda appeared to have crossed the line from fraud and malpractice to assault. But what truly set Linda's treatments apart from her mentor Dr. Dewey's course of care was the final prescription. Daily enemas. Dr. Dewey thought that a patient's bowels should be allowed to function naturally without any intervention. But Linda disagreed. She believed that the purging practice would flush the system more quickly and eliminate the so-called poisons in people's bodies. Linda required her patients endure enemas almost every day, sometimes twice. Those treatments had to have been uncomfortable, but more than that, the frequency at which they were performed was unsafe, especially when paired with Linda's extreme form of fasting. Enemas involve the injection of a saline solution into the lower bowel via the rectum. They're most commonly administered to help alleviate constipation and to cleanse the bowel prior to medical examinations and operations. They're also common in alternative medicine. 
The number of enemas someone can safely get in a given time span depends entirely on the individual's general state of health. However, doing this daily or multiple times a day is absolutely nuts. These procedures dehydrate people and deplete their electrolyte levels, and this is because the injected solutions draw fluid out of the body during the evacuation. Electrolytes are responsible for maintaining virtually every bodily function, and an imbalance can cause dangerous health complications like cardiac arrest, seizures, and even coma. Linda's starving patients would have been feeling incredibly weak with these daily enemas, and their health would have declined much faster as a result. Daisy Hagland underwent 50 days of brutal starvation, aggressive massage, and uncomfortable enemas, growing thinner and weaker at each appointment. Sadly, on her 38th birthday, February 8, 1908, Daisy died, becoming the second known person to lose their life following Linda's treatment. Afterward, Linda refused to take any responsibility for the tragic turn of events. But when another patient died that year, Linda realized she needed more damage control. She decided to codify her method and release a book like Dr. Dewey had. In 1908, 40-year-old Linda self-published Fasting for the Cure of Disease. It outlined her belief in the cure and explained how to follow it from home. While the first chapter began with a quote from John Milton's Paradise Lost, the bulk of the language was dry, academic, and self-important. Linda repeatedly claimed food was the cause of many diseases and sold herself as a medical missionary. Hoping to hook new customers, Linda touted her manuscript far and wide, and patience came rolling in. In February 1910, a young civil engineer by the name of Earl Edward Erdman came to Linda complaining of indigestion. Like with her other patients, Linda plied Earl with massages, daily enemas, and rigorous fasting requirements. After just two weeks, he was sweaty and weak, and his eyes were sunken. He looked like an old man. Despite the pleas of a friend who begged him to stop, Earl kept seeing Dr. Linda Hazard. As the days went by, Earl kept a diary of the habits that slowly killed him, including a log of all the food he consumed. On his first day, Earl noted that Linda had not allowed him breakfast, but in the latter part of the day, he ate two meals of mashed soup. A few days later, he ate one orange for breakfast. Lunch was mashed soup, dinner was the same. On February 12th, he had a single orange for each meal. February 14th century said that he ate a single cup of tomato broth. Earl, like all of Linda's patients, must have been suffering from a significant nutritional deficiency. A diet like this is lacking in key nutrients and protein and is highly acidifying to the system. These depletions can lead to a host of health problems, including gastrointestinal issues, dermatological disorders, cognitive deficits, and bone damage. 
Protein deficiency, on the other hand, can lead to things like muscle wasting, increased risk of bone fractures, impaired immune function, and anemia, which causes fatigue due to oxygen deprivation on a cellular level. Because oranges and tomatoes are highly acidic, these people would have also likely experienced severe inflammatory responses in their bodily tissues, which could have caused physical discomfort and exacerbated any underlying health issues they may have had. It's possible that Linda specifically chose oranges and tomatoes because of their high acidity. There are alternative practitioners who feel the implementation of a highly acidic diet can cleanse the body of toxins or pollutants. However, the science doesn't yet substantiate any of this. Either way, Linda's prescription was nowhere near enough food for Earl. Soon, Earl began journaling complaints of physical pain. He also reported increasing dizziness. By March, Earl's health grew so poor that a friend called an ambulance to take him to Seattle City Hospital. There, a nurse recalled that she could count his ribs through his bed sheets. Doctors told Earl he'd need a blood transfusion. Earl may have lost some blood, but it's more likely he received a blood transfusion because he was so weak. When someone's been so severely starved and dehydrated, they're extremely low on electrolytes, which are vital minerals like potassium, calcium, and sodium that essentially keep our bodies functioning. Electrolytes help regulate things like blood pressure, heart rate, and muscle contraction, along with many other autonomic processes. Given that our story takes place in the early 1900s, blood transfusion would have been a common treatment at the time for someone in Earl's condition. The additional blood would have delivered fluid to his system, as well as more oxygen, as a result of the increase in red blood cells. Intravenous fluids would have been a better therapeutic option for him, but IV solutions weren't widely used or available until about the 1950s. With Earl so compromised, the medical professionals likely felt they had to act fast, and they used the techniques readily available to them. The doctors prepared Earl for the procedure but sadly, he died before the blood could reach his veins. When she found out Earl had died, Linda insisted on conducting the autopsy. In her report, she noted that Earl's digestive organs were of infantile size. Her findings didn't sway the media. Shortly after Earl's death, the Seattle Daily Times ran a news headline that read, Woman MD kills another patient. But while the press may have run with the story, authorities couldn't prosecute Linda. There simply weren't laws in Washington state that prohibited what she'd done. She now had a valid medical license and her patients were consenting adults. So Linda shrugged off the bad publicity and continued her operation with the same method that worked for her before. A change? of scenery. Coming up, Linda brings her scheme to greener pastures. Now, back to the story. In 1910, 42-year-old Dr. Linda Hazard's methods were scrutinized by the Seattle press after another patient died. Of course, Linda was unwilling to accept blame for the tragedy. She insisted that her method worked and all the naysayers would be proven wrong. In the meantime, she found solace in Olala, a remote town across the bay from Seattle. 
Though it was only a short boat ride away, it felt like another world. Away from prying eyes, Linda felt inspired to build her own health center. It helped that Olala was full of residents who felt that America had lost sight of personal freedoms and welcomed people with non-traditional views. Eager to relocate, Linda and Sam began to acquire land and quickly made plans for a main house where she and Sam would live, complete with an office and a treatment room. Patients would stay in cabins on the grounds for rest and recovery. With the vision mapped out in her mind, Linda set out on development. The costly facility would be built exactly as she imagined. One of her most notable architectural decisions was a curved white archway at the entrance to the grounds. It would serve as a portal for all who visited what Linda dubbed Wilderness Heights. As construction workers toiled away at Linda's extensive plans, Linda returned to Seattle and solicited patients from as far away as England and Australia. She'd entice foreign patients by helping them find apartments and hotels in the area, promising her nursing staff would tend to them as they underwent her treatment. No matter their ailment or country of origin, the fasting plan was always the same. Every human body is different, so a one-size-fits-all medical approach is at odds with patient safety. Linda's fasting regimen was dangerous and wrong on a number of levels, but the fact that she prescribed the same plan to all of her patients highlights the foolishness and nearsightedness of her treatment. Hypothetically, if a medical professional were to create a fasting routine for someone, they take into account the patient's age, body mass index, and any underlying metabolic disorders or health issues. Everyone has different nutritional needs, therefore it's crucial for a patient's well-being to customize any dietary strategy they might require. There are obvious treatments or strategies that are universal in healthcare, like staying off a broken bone to let it heal, or abstaining from drug use during a medically guided detox. However, for more nuanced health issues, doctors need to tailor their prescribed treatment options for the protection of their patients. It's unclear whether Linda believed in her fasting plans so wholeheartedly or simply hoped she could trick her patient into believing it worked long enough that they'd die before questioning it. One thing was apparent. Richer patients often seemed to be more at risk undergoing Linda's method. One victim of this pattern was 26-year-old Eugene Wakelin. When the New Zealand-born son of an English lord discovered Linda's book around 1909, he promptly traveled to America, potentially disregarding his family's claims that Linda was a quack. Despite his pedigree, Eugene was treated just like the other patients. Until he wasn't. In author Greg Olson's 1997 book Starvation Heights, it is suggested that at some point during Eugene's therapeutic care, Linda may have learned that he didn't have the money she assumed a British noble would have. In fact, he had borrowed money for his ticket to the United States. People speculated that Eugene had fallen out with his family, losing access to his generational wealth. It's possible this made Linda angry enough to assume that continuing to work with Eugene would be a waste of time. 
Author Greg Olson discusses a rather convincing argument held by certain authorities at the time that Linda, or maybe Sam, shot Eugene, leaving him for dead. Three weeks later, Eugene's decomposing corpse was discovered on Linda's property. Despite the suspicious circumstances, Linda insisted he must have died by suicide. And by the time the body was found, it was hard to challenge her claim. Eugene's body had already decomposed too much for his wound to be properly assessed. Forensic investigations were probably far more rudimentary in the early 1900s, but once Eugene had begun to decompose, it would have been even harder for authorities to interpret the nature of the gunshot wound. After about three weeks, depending on environmental conditions, Eugene's body would have likely been in a stage of decomposition, known as active decay, where the flesh starts to liquefy due to chemical changes in the cells and tissues. The degradation of the corpse in this case would have made it difficult to establish how Eugene was killed. Even with modern technology, decomposing flesh can often be a tricky obstacle for those trying to determine a cause of death. The death of Eugene Wakelin would unfortunately remain shrouded in mystery. But however he died, Linda's next actions were suspiciously opportunistic. She contacted Eugene's attorneys in New Zealand and invoiced them $155, or what would be about $4,500 now, for funerary costs. At the time, the number was incredibly high. The situation grew even more suspicious when investigators discovered Linda had previously been given power of attorney over Eugene's estate. She made sure that she was in control of everything Eugene owned when he died. To Linda's dismay, it was only $223, about $6,500 today. She needed more cash to complete her sanitarium in Olala. Still, Linda took the money and avoided further investigation. Despite Eugene's death, her international reputation remained largely untarnished. The next year, around early September 1910, Linda received a book request from two wealthy British heiresses, 33-year-old Claire and 37-year-old Dorothea Williamson. Educated in Switzerland, England, and France, the sisters were well-traveled, and their journeys together had made them extremely close. Though Dora was four years older, they'd bonded enormously after the death of both of their parents by the time they were in their teens. They had a group of distant family members scattered around the world, but their true home was with one another. Thanks to their inheritance, the Williamson sisters enjoyed comfortable lives and often pursued consultations at various health centers across the globe. Naturally, when Linda informed them of her emerging sanitarium on the beautiful coast of the Pacific Northwest, they couldn't resist. They wrote back to Linda, they had plans to spend some time in the warmth of California and express their interest in a stay with her after. Linda replied that the Williamson sisters were more than welcome. And in the meantime, she hooked her next wealthy victim. John 
Ivan Flux was an Englishman who came to the United States with hopes of buying a ranch in the Pacific Northwest. But his plans were intercepted in the fall of 1910 when he met Dr. Linda Hazard. It's unclear what he suffered, if anything, but before long, he was under Linda's treatment. She set Ivan up in an isolated apartment outside Seattle and he began fasting on December 19, 1910. In the weeks that followed, Ivan ate little and underwent around 100 enema treatments. Within weeks, he was so exhausted that just sitting up in bed was difficult. Linda paid no mind, insisting Ivan get up each day to exercise. When he could no longer leave his room, Linda reportedly abandoned Ivan as his body dwindled to nothing. 53 days after beginning his fast, Ivan died. As with all patient deaths, Linda was the one to sign the death certificate. Following her usual process, she claimed Ivan had died of pneumonia. Even worse, Linda never contacted any of Ivan's family. Ivan's father only found out that his son had died when he contacted the British consulate. Irate, he pursued answers from Linda and demanded to know where his son's money was. Linda claimed that Ivan had only $70 with him when he passed away. This couldn't have been true. When he'd left for America, Ivan brought several hundred dollars with him. That money was apparently gone, as were his holdings in Canada. It seemed that Dr. Linda Hazard had bled him dry. The pattern was clear. Linda lured patient after patient with her promise of healing only to turn on them in their final hours. But no case was so malignant as that of the Williamson sisters who finally headed to Seattle just days after Ivan Flux died. They had high hopes for their wellness retreat. Little did they know, their time with Linda would be anything but healthy. In our next episode of Medical Murders, Linda welcomes the first patients to her Olala Sanitarium, Wilderness Heights. But as more patients visit, it gains a new name, Starvation Heights. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me, Alistair. For more information on Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard, among the many sources we used, we found the book Starvation Heights, a true story of murder and malice in the woods of the Pacific Northwest by Greg Olson, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Ellie Hart, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and Lauren DeLille, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Murder.